Hi, everyone. Wynn Claybaugh here, and I'm just so honored to be able to share this incredible message. And I've taken the last couple of weeks to dive deep into this woman's amazing message. And I know that you are going to immediately be profoundly impacted and you're going to lean in and you're going to call other people and say, you have to listen to this interview because (laughs) it applies to everybody. This isn't just for CEOs. This isn't just for teachers. This message just has such a a profound impact on every part of our culture and society. And especially nowadays with everything that we've all been through with the pandemic and social unrest and, and uh, the lack of empathy. And that's not just my opinion. There are studies. People are concerned about that. I know that many of us are concerned about the mental health of our children, the mental health of our youth, of our, of our team members. And to know that this message absolutely is a big part of the puzzle to put all of this back together and take us to a whole nother level. Boy, that was a mouthful. And I haven't even said your name, Angela. It is. Oh my gosh. There's so much to unpack there. Well, can you tell I'm passionate about your message? And I I came across Angela. I was just searching around as I often do. Mostly I, I, one of my go-to places is Ted Talks. So I'm on YouTube and I'm checking out TED Talks and all of a sudden I came across this woman. And I I think I watched your TED Talk maybe three or four times (laughs) before I then had the courage to go to your website. And I I contacted you through the website. You immediately responded back or maybe it was through Instagram. I don't know. I think I tried every (laughs) angle. I I sent out a pigeon your way. Did you get the pigeon? I got the pigeon. I was going to make sure that I found you. I loved it. (laughs) Well, I am meeting here today with Angela Myers. She is considered one of today's most influential thought leaders in education and transformative thinking. Now, I have a lot to read here and share with you guys so that uh, you, you know exactly the impact that this woman is having already on this planet and the role that she's going to play in your world. She has been praised by leaders in business, the military, administrators of schools, of every level from elementary to graduate around the globe for the life-changing, world-changing impact she has had on the hundreds of thousands of lives with whom she has reached with her message of mattering. She has been named by Forbes as one of the top five edupreneurs. Is that a word? Yes. It's, you know, education. We love to make up words, right? (laughs) Did you make up this one? Because it's okay if you did. I did not make up this one. I make up several words, but I, but yeah, I did not make up that one. (laughs) Among the top 100 women in technology (laughs) and among the top 20 education thought leaders by TrustEd. She is the author of nine books on education, including the noted Genius Matters and Classroom Habitudes, and was for many years a prolific contributor to the Huffington Post on innovation technology and education. Okay, no, we're not done yet. So, so listen oh up, Angela, God, you got to sit tight. Well, no, <laughs> it's not too much because get this. Okay. An educator for 30 years, Angela's work in 78,000 classrooms across 100 countries has rallied more than a million children who have banded together to launch 170 social enterprises <laughs> and pass 17 laws. In 2011, you gave that TED Talk that I stumbled across on the power of two simple words, you matter. And then the video went viral. 
what resulted <laughs> with the start of a movement which became the global nonprofit organization Choose to Matter, which we're going to talk about as well. So, uh, Angela Myers, again, it's just such an honor and to, uh, again, have spent the last week getting to know you. We've never met in person, but I know. Remember, remember the first day that we got on the phone? Yes, we didn't <laughs> stop talking because so much of what you not only write about, what you believe, what you have taught, you embody. And I just, I'm about three fourths of the way through your book and I have so many notes. There's so much alignment in not only the message, but how people receive the message of, of kindness and mattering and all those, all those things in between. Well, thank you for that coming from you. Uh, that, that does mean a lot. I am almost 40 years into my career. And before we started recording here this morning, I talked about how when I launched my company, we didn't even have a curriculum set up in terms of the technical <laughs> skills that we were promising to deliver. But what we had first was the foundation of a culture. Um, you know, what do they say? Culture eats systems for lunch. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so we knew that we had to start off that way. Uh, Cause I think to not start off the way with the foundation, such as what you're going to share with us here today to not start off that way means that you get some bad habits along the way. And maybe you attract uh, the type of people who are not as committed and passionate or believe deeply in what this foundation needs to look like in order to be a long-term success. And, and for, for me, the long-term success absolutely needed to be about changing lives and even saving lives. And, and we hear that. I'm sure that you have heard this. I'm sure you have had parents come to you and say, Angela, because of your work, <laughs> because of what you created, not only did you Change the life of my son or daughter, you saved their life. Has that happened to you before? Yes. And I do not take that lightly. In fact, usually when someone asks me what I do, I say, I change lives and I change the world. And they're like, oh, that's so sweet. But like, what do you actually do? I said, that is what I actually do. I wake up thinking about that. As an educator, that's our responsibility. And to enter the world with no less of an intent, there's nothing gregarious or ego-driven about that. Every single person has the availability and opportunity to do the same. We don't change the world in grand ways. We change the world by how we see ourselves and how we see others in it. Now, what do you say? This isn't about ego. This is about DNA. So yeah. those two words, you matter. It's not yep. about ego. It's not about DNA. All. What do you mean by that? Well, mattering is simply a part of the condition of being human. Human beings don't simply desire they deserve, they need to be seen, to be heard, to be validated, to be offered the opportunity to contribute their best self to the world. And when we don't have those conditions as a part of our lives, a part of our work, a part of our world, however we define it, we, not only do we suffer, the world suffers. Because when any of those conditions are not present, we show up differently. We don't contribute as fully. And the peril of that, the result of that is everything from um, apathy to agony and everything in between. So when you say that hope mattering significance yep. is, you're saying it's a basic human need that, Absolutely. that this is oxygen for people. 
100%. It is like food, water, shelter, and air. And we need to position it as such. And when we don't take care of our, our emotional, social, soulful well-being, it impacts in the same way we don't take care of our physical well-being. So we are asked to be conscious of what we eat, how we take care of our health, how we exercise, if we're vaccinated, if we're not vaccinated, all of those things, because we understand that we show up differently in the world when any one of those needs, when we're, when we're hungry, when we're feeling unsafe, when we are lacking, you know, a physical human need, the world, like, you know, the national guard comes out because we understand we cannot move forward in even the most basic way until those conditions are met, except the elements of mattering are invisible. And so you don't have a sign on everyone that when you meet them, that says, do I matter to you? And yet every human being is wondering that every single day. I, I remember you saying that in one of the interviews that pe people don't walk around with a tattoo or a no. sign that says, do I matter? And yet, you know what we're learning now through the social unrest, incredible lessons yeah. that are life-changing and, and world-changing is the fact that people need to be seen that we need to acknowledge, that we need right. to celebrate people's heritages, people's backstory, so to speak, people's lifestyle. And that, it, again, is a basic human need. Absolutely. I said before the pandemic that insignificance was the single most common ailment of the modern world. And it is at pandemic levels because it not only doesn't discriminate by age, by title, by position, by post, it discriminates because it's invisible. We can see if someone is lacking food or hasn't had shelter or, you know, even we're so open to communicating lack of our other essential needs. We'll tell a complete stranger, gosh, I'm starving. Do you have a drinking fountain near? I really feel parched right now. But we don't say, you know what, I'm feeling really invisible right now, or I don't feel validated by my boss or my spouse or whoever it is, because we have attached shame with something that should be an essential need that we should talk openly about. Now, you had my attention at the very beginning of me stumbling across your message <laughs> uh, because I have, gosh, I don't know, 15, 16,000 people. Uh, in my organization, my work organization, yeah. that community that I have, but also I'm a dad and there's probably not one master's interview that I have done since I became a dad where I don't say, Hey, everybody, I'm a dad. So yeah, yeah I'm a dad and that changes everything. But how often do we hear the story of, of somebody who is now famous and they're winning awards and they're, they're winning accolades. And when they tell their story, oftentimes they tell the story of, Hey, I had a teacher in fifth yeah. grade who said this to me and it changed my life. And now I am king of the world. And I think now, because I'm a room parent and I've been the room parent at my daughter's school, almost every single grade, uh, they skipped over me in third grade, but I told them, I know where you live. You better choose me for fourth. <laughs> so I'm back on the map again. I'm back in the classroom. I get to be a room parent, but, but I think Okay, if, if people who have won major awards are saying it was because of a teacher that they had in elementary school or high school that made that huge, big impact that turned their lives around. And I'm thinking, what if it's this teacher? What if it's the yeah. fourth grade teacher that my daughter has right now? 
then what do I need to do to make sure that that fourth grade teacher feels loved, supported, empowered? I will put a tip jar in her classroom uh, (laughs) to show how much love I have for this incredible woman. And actually, there's two different teachers. And I, I love them both because of the work that they do. And I don't know I mean, I I know, but I don't really know for sure. I don't have cameras in the classroom of the words that she is saying, the energy that she uses as she's addressing my daughter. I think that I know and I I see the impact that it has when my daughter comes home, the positive impact. And 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 sometimes I want to shake the other parents, wake up. This could be the teacher that changes your child's life for the rest of their life. No, absolutely. And if you think about not just the teachers, but the people that have made the most impact in your life, whether it is on a personal path, a professional path, it is a person or persons that made you understand how much you mattered. They made you feel seen. They made you feel um, needed and valued and honored and recognized. And when that happens, everything changes. I just did an education podcast, and one of the statistics that is really important, whether you have chosen the role to guide another soul from the perspective of a parent or an educator, when you're in charge of another human being's essence, the most important statistic to remember is the greatest predictor of how that human will engage in the world is how they see you engaging in the world, whether that be their parents, whether that be their teacher. So what gets me up and what gets me through even the hardest days is understanding that I'm being watched by the most important humans in the world, the people that will not only carry on this moment that I've had with them or I get to have with them, but moments far beyond that. And it urges me um, and reminds me of my responsibility And this truth that I cannot teach, I cannot parent, I cannot lead, and I certainly cannot change lives and worlds from a place of unworthiness. It is my responsibility to own my own value and my own significance and act accordingly. And you say something very similar in being nice. If you're not nice to yourself, it's the whole oxygen theory. If you're not nice to yourself, then you don't have the wherewithal to be nice to other people. It's a a movement that starts from the inside out. Now you just said, and I know that your message was primarily for parents and teachers, Yeah. where you said, if you are in charge of another human being's essence, yeah. well, (laughs) aren't you talking to every person on the planet? Yeah. I mean, don't don't all of us collectively, because, yeah. you know, one of your messages that it takes a village here. It does. It 100 percent does. And that's why I say when I say I change lives and change the world, I also say so do you. So do you. Every moment of the day, you are making an impact, whether you know it or not. Doing nothing is making an impact. Smiling is making an impact. Being nice is making an impact. Ignoring someone, humiliating someone, demeaning someone. Every action that we take, big and small, makes some sort of ripple. And the question is, you know, what kind of dent? It's not like, are you going to make an impact? It's what impact do you choose to make? And then guide your actions and behaviors accordingly. Well, Angela, you have to help me go in the right direction here because my yeah. little ADD mind is going to have you jumping all over the place. <laughs> well, and so, I have ADD too. I'm a proud oh, well, then ADD. You can girl. follow me and maybe, maybe yeah. our, our listeners can as well. You tell the story, and I again, I'm going to jump all over this place. You tell the story (laughs) 
where, where one of the final lines of the story was that you had a mom say to you, I was watching the soul of my son disappear. Yeah. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, um, because not only have I heard that story a million times, I lived that story. I almost lost my child in high school. Um, he was very active in sports. He got an injury and he sort of lost his purpose. His purpose wasn't to be the highest academic or to fall in line. He's he's a creative now. He's living his passion. It's stunning to watch. But I finally said, like, you don't have to go to college. Like, you need to find out how to be calm with what you are, to discover what's inside of you. And he ended up, I don't tell this story often, but he ended up while I was on the road writing a letter to Columbia Film School because of their mission statement about honoring passion and, and helping you turn your passion into purpose. And he got in because he watched Sir Ken Robinson, one of my mentors, um, his TED talk and said, you know, like that's when your soul is crushed, when you don't feel valued and recognized by the contribution that you are able to give to the world. And unfortunately, that's not, you know, not an unusual story. It's probably the most normal story that school wasn't the place where I found out how much I mattered. And I am absolutely um, convicted to changing that. School should be the extension of the home and the place that reinforces exactly that. Okay, so tell us your story. Walk us through this. How did you come across this? So you entered the workplace, the workforce as an educator? In, in No, I was in medical school because I was a perfect child, a perfect student. I was like strangled in perfection. And at that time we didn't, I grew up in a really small town of 641 people in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. And it, we didn't have like all of these college extension classes. And so there was just a group of seven of us and two of us were girls. And at that time in college, it wasn't, there wasn't this mass, like, you know, impetus of girls in STEM and girls in math. And I was really good at school and I was either going to be a scientist or a doctor. And so I'm like, oh, all right, I'll be a doctor. And so I went there and during college, I worked four jobs to put myself through college and I found what made me come alive. I loved learning. I was good at it. But passion isn't doing what you're good at. Passion is doing um, what you must do. The root word of passion is to suffer. And that was my first kind of inkling to know that I was created for something significant and it wasn't in medicine, it was in education. So I quit medical school and I went back to college and said I was going to be a teacher thinking like I had this big epiphany and everybody was just going to like celebrate this like deep awakening inside of me and no one supported me. And that's when I knew asking me to do anything other than educate would be like asking me not to breathe. And I knew unequivocally that's what I was meant to do. And so it wasn't this direct path. Like I knew from, you know, the get go, I wanted to be a teacher. So that was sort of the first inkling. And then the work in education started with very impoverished areas with what would be considered at that time, it was called at risk or at need families and schools. And 
I had this sort of savior complex. Like I'm going to go in, I'm going to change their world. I'm going to go save them. And, and what I learned is that no human being is inspired by being seen as needy. What empowers a human being is to be recognized and needed. And that was the foundation of mattering is understanding the deepest driver of human behavior is to say, I need you to recognize what in a person is valuable, what is honored, what needs to be noticed and noted and brought out. And that's what I did flip sort of the script, like instead of like, oh, you poor families or you poor kids, let me save you. It was, let me notice how extraordinary you are and remind you that no matter what circumstance you're in, you matter. The world needs exactly, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it was, your perseverance, your creativity, your, your contribution. And that Interesting is, as you say yeah. that, because I lived in South America as a missionary mm. uh, when I was 19 years old. And, uh, you know, for me back then, I, that was like a, an extended camping trip. You know, we, li- we lived very, very raw and it was exciting. And I remember coming home and jumping into my business, into my career and making money and buying a nice car and buying nice things. I would oftentimes think back at the wonderful people that I got to know, the families yeah. who lived there in South America and who had basically nothing. They lived in, in cane yeah. shacks. They had no electricity, no running water. And yet they were just as happy as can be. And that was always something that was in the forefront of my mind. Remember that, remember that when it's not about, like you said, going in this, with this savior complex that I'm going to save you because you're so needy. Absolutely rather than maybe we needed to turn things around here. Maybe I was the one who, well, I know that for a fact, I know that I was the one who, who needed whatever it was that they. hundred percent. Maybe I was the one who, who needed what they had to offer. Yes. It changes you. You, when you are invited to impart, I call it your genius, but your contribution to, you know, not just a circumstance, but the world that, act changes us. It validates our worthiness. And you will work tirelessly when you know that what you have is valued by another human being. I always say, like I started my career with five-year-olds and we're in this giant worldwide show and tell, except we forgot the rules and the rules of show and tell. When you bring something in your backpack to share is not to outshine someone else's backpack. It's not to compete with the person next to you or to go on and on about how great what's in your backpack is compared to theirs. The goal of showcasing something in your backpack is so that someone else will ask you to tell you more, to meet you at recess and say, oh my gosh, tell me more. And that's when you feel really valuable that you brought something that honored what else was contributed and that you listened carefully to 29 other people as they contributed. And we've just forgot that the rules of show and tell have not changed. That's a part of our humanness, our ability to bring our genius to the world. That's why five-year-olds will run up to you in the grocery store and say like, I'm a dinosaur expert and I'm a dancer and I'm a this because they cannot bear the thought that they have this gift. They have this knowledge that can inspire you, help you, grow you. And they kept it to themselves. It's just incomprehensible to them. What a great analogy, show and tell. <laughs> now, nowadays, show and tell 
is, yeah. is more about shaming other people. Absolutely. Making others feel less than because of, of, of what we're sharing. Wow. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. So tell me where did those two words, you matter, where did those two words come about? How do they come about in your world? And you said, that's it. That's it. I'm going to build a whole foundation based on those two words. I think like any other thing um, that happens, it was completely accidental. I had been teaching uh, early elementary and kindergarten, and we always told each other that. We always acknowledged the genius in our present. And five-year-olds are very, very vocal about getting all of their essential needs met from in the middle of math class, needing to go to the bathroom or walking through the door and you not noticing that, you know what, their barrette that was on the right side of their head is now on the left side of their head or that they got new laces in their tennis shoes and you didn't notice it. So we've always, I think kinder, everybody who has not been in kindergarten to go visit a kindergarten and remind ourselves who we were at five years old. We were the fiercest, most compassionate, most empathetic human beings, because we hadn't been tainted by a world that knows nothing else. I mean, there's study after study on watching young children in the world without the influence of the world, just our empathy is innate. Our compassion is innate. All of the things that make us not very nice are inherited, taught, and developed in other ways. So I think that it just was a part. And when I got asked to do TED, I panicked actually at four in the morning, I called the director and said, I'm not going to do it because I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel like my voice was enough. I had watched like my favorite TED talks the week before, and I freaked myself out. And then I thought of the young people that I'm in front of every day. And would I allow the same for them? If they came to me and hesitated or held in their genius, or they held in something that could change someone else's mind or mood, would I tolerate that? And I, I said, I couldn't face them the next day. And I said, what it comes down to is reminding yourself that you do matter. That if these two words or this story touched one human being in a way that gave them a record of their significance and worthiness, that that supersedes any fear that I have. And so I never imagined like it beyond just the group that I was in front of and never, ever imagined what would happen after. But that's where it started. It's just been a part of who I am since as long as I remember. And I just put it in words. And again, here I am jumping around, but I, I want to qualify <laughs> our listeners because I know people, yeah. maybe it's human nature that they think, okay, this doesn't apply to me. That's really cute. Uh, she worked with kindergarten children. Right, so of right. course, this this is an important uh, message for kindergartners. But Angela, why why is the military engaged with you? Yeah. Why why are you making an impact there? Because this is a DNA level human need. Okay, we I said that I said that before quoting you. What does that mean? Explain, break that down for us. Yeah. It means that when you look at the science or conditions of what make us human, human beings need food, water, shelter, and air, but they also need, and I'm going to use the word need to feel seen, to feel valued, to feel heard. And the most devastating thing that can happen to a human being, an individual or an organization is when they don't believe their contributions are valued or have value. 
And so if you think about what connected me with the military and the work that I did with the military is I worked with a lot of combat veterans that knew they mattered in that specific role, their identity as a soldier, their identity as representing something that that was honored and respected and that they were fighting not just for their team, but for the world, that is intoxicating, literally intoxicating. And then they came home and they don't know what their value is beyond what the combat was. And so they signed up for combat two, three, four times or or to be in the front line, not necessarily combat, but to re-enlist multiple times. And there was this deep dive in depression and isolation in in addition to PTSD, but um, high rates of suicide, lots of things because they didn't understand how to be valuable in a different context. So when you look at separating our jobs from our identity, part of our developing identity is knowing that we have value, knowing that we have value because we exist, not when or if or during or only. We have value as we are now, period. And that's a really hard concept to untangle because so much of our identity and our value is intertwined in surface level, not reliable things like our job, like our position, the power that we yield, um, the place that we happen to be at that time, and not truly developed in the essence of who we are, because we haven't taken time to figure out what our core is, who we are. And I don't mean that to sound kumbaya-ish, but we have to untangle those things and, and get to more fundamental concepts of what it means to be human. Now, when you get noticed by organizations such as Forbes, IBM, Huffington Post, now you have the attention of for-profit business leaders. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what are the cultural shifts that need to take place in a company so that this sticks, so that this really does have the impact. Because, you know, even in my company, not that this is the only thing that we do, because it's absolutely not the only thing that we do. And it's something that we are constantly, okay, well, that worked. And now we've got to do this. It's like people who go to yoga one time and say, well, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. You know, exactly. so we would have uh, events uh, such as free hugs. So we would, you know, every one of my locations, 100 plus locations, hit the streets and, all over the country, and we would document it with photos and videos and send out that message of free hugs. Okay, well, that 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 worked. Well, but yep. but what about tomorrow? Tomorrow. <laughs> and what about next week? <laughs> yeah. You know, meaning it can't just go to yoga one time. We have to keep on going back and going back and going back for this to really, really have the profound impact that it is meant to have in the for-profit world, in the business world. So take us down that path. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know that you felt a lot of the same thing with the concept of kindness and the concept of being nice. It is really easy to take it at the surface. And I take it at the surface because in, I would say the majority of the work that I do is large keynote speeches that sort of open a concept, kind of disrupt a little bit, but the actual work is done by the community of leaders. And so 
part of just being a keynote speaker is you know that you're not going to go super, super deep in that 45 minutes or an hour that you're opening up a dialogue. And the biggest, I guess, trend that I see and have seen over, well, there's two over the last decade, because I've been a professional speaker for 28 years and I have got a background in neuroscience, a background in linguistics and education. So I have a lot of content that I was known for. I was known for social media and literacy and systems change and all that. And about 10 years ago, I started seeing this shift and I I thought it would die down after the TED talk, but it doesn't matter what industry, literally doesn't matter what industry. The number one request I get is, I just need you to make my people feel that they matter, period. There's such a deep systemic desire for whether it's your customers, whether it's your clients, whether it's your internal employees, whether it's your colleagues, for people to need to know they matter, that that has become the topic. The bigger challenge is to help them understand that mattering isn't a theme for the year. It's not an event. It's not an activity that I say it is not just an agenda. It is the agenda. So what I try to provide is actionable, sustainable frameworks to sustain the culture of mattering, to help shape meaningful and meaning-driven conversations and connections. And to do that, you need language, you need tools, you need access to protocols and practices in order for people to start seeing that this, and it doesn't matter how much science I throw at them, but to see that this isn't a quick fix. Easy is not simple. So the essence of helping another human being feel like they matter is really easy, but it is not simple because it is so common sense that we rely on intuition and not science. We rely on happenstance and not habits and practice. And so common sense does not translate into common practice and commonplace. It needs leadership. It needs focus. It needs intention. And that's the big lift is to help with these frameworks and actions and tools to put into place those common practices and common procedures. So it becomes a part of the culture. Okay. A couple of things that that you touched on that I want to ask about. First of all, I, I, uh, I found it kind of interesting that, that bosses would say to you, Hey, I want you to come in and make my people feel they matter. Isn't it in the back of your head thinking, well, that's sort of your job. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> I've, I've had bosses come to my team building yeah. exercise yeah. seminar and they're, they're like, you know, I'm just going to stand on the sidelines and watch my people learn about teamwork. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you're going to undo everything that I'm trying to do while it's happening. Yes. Without, without you in the mix of it, without you fully participating <laughs> and diving in, then none of this is going to land. None of this is going to sustain. Uh, you talk about the s- sustainability. And I also like the fact that you said that th- this isn't an event. Uh, this isn't uh, just a one-time thing that's going to provide the sustainability that you're looking for. That would be like saying that my marriage is uh, yeah. sustained because that's on right. Valentine's Day, once a year, I give my spouse a, a good present and that's Correct. what sustains our romance. And I think asking quite, you know, like I haven't found huge success in throwing statistics. And yet the biggest study that I did that was education-based is we surveyed for South by Southwest. I think it was about seven years ago. We surveyed a half a million kids, 500,000 kids in every 
state and demographic in the U.S. And we asked them one question, what would make you run to school? And then I worked with the largest employee engagement network. And we did that to 22,000 businesses. And to showcase the DNA aspect of just that simple question, not a Gallup poll or not like really, you know, an intensive, like deep survey, but really what makes you show up in the world on the worst days and be willing to still give your best self. And we were not, I shouldn't be say stunned, but the biggest response back from kids, and this was like the most at-risk group of kids. These were middle school boys was somebody to smile at me and say my name. And I thought, well, I, I grew up with five-year-olds. Like if you don't say a child's name 700 times during the day, they're going to remind you of their name. And, and it was just like stunning. They didn't say we want more recess. We want more technology. We want better food. We want, you know, raises or money or all of those things we think that human beings want. It was the deep dive into our essence as human beings. We want to matter period. We want to know that you see us. We want to know that you appreciate and recognize and value us. We want to feel believed in and honored and challenged and trusted. And then when you look at all the research, so like I pulled this for an article that I'm doing, this was like pre-pandemic. Mercer did a survey and 34% of the employees, they had pre-pandemic plan to leave their current role within the next year. 45% of employees said they were are actively looking for other jobs within their current organization. That was a, a SHRM statistic in 2019. 13% of employees are engaged worldwide, according to Gallup. 29% of millennials are engaged and 16% actively disengaged. Wow. Research, research, research. $11 billion is lost annually due to employee turnover by Bloomberg News. So wow. I can go on and on and on and on. And yet, it comes down to the simple question, ask your employees, ask what they value most. And it will not, people don't leave a bad company. They leave a bad boss. They leave a bad environment. And when it, when you pull everything down, it comes down to, they don't feel matter. One of those conditions, those human DNA level conditions was not met. Well, I, first of all, I love that you're asking people to ask their employees. Yes. Ask Sounds them. So you know, simple, common sense. Yeah, how do right? I know? Well, you you ask them. And I have a feeling yes. that a lot of them, they don't want to ask because they are assuming, well, they're assuming that the number one answer is I want more money. And, right. and I have a feeling right. that you're going to tell us, I'll just make up the yep. statistic because why let the truth get in the way of making a good point? Right. <laughs> I'm I'm guessing that income is way down the list. That income way is probably never n- number seven, way number 10 as to why somebody would. And I love the question that you're asking kindergartners. Why would you run to school? Ask employees, why would you run to work every day? We did this K-12. So it wasn't just five-year-olds. Just We actually started at fourth grade because five-year-olds know they matter. So it, we just need to understand that the world, it doesn't matter what organization you're in, It doesn't matter where you come from, what your zip code is, what your race, gender, religion is. The world is functioning at mass scale below their level of potential because we are feeling or fearing one or the other are insignificant. And we have to be conscious as individuals and as communities to that danger because everything we try at the surface level to counteract that measure doesn't stick. 
because it is a band-aid. We don't, I, I say we don't have an abuse problem. We don't have an employee problem. We don't have an engagement problem. We don't even have a bullying problem or a suicide problem. We have a mattering problem. And we have to understand the elements that keep us alive in every sense of the word. To me, that's kind of good news because it is because it really can be that yes. simple. And people are it passing is. this off. Oh, that's too simple. Yes. It's a, you know, hang a poster that says "Be kind" and and, yes. and we're done. That's all we have to do. Yes, and it, we blow it off because we are conditioned from very early on that complex problems must be solved by complex interventions, by things that take years, that cost trillions of dollars, that require people that are smarter than us to implement, that individuals can't be responsible for their own behavior, actions, and impact when that is absolutely false. We bought into that because that is what fuels a lot of people. A lot of people make a lot of money on programs and and practices when if we just break it down and we take all, going back to the community that you serve, to the community that I served, I grew up in a town of 600 people, If you take all that other stuff away, how do human beings survive? They survive by bringing meaning to one another's lives. (laughs) And this requires respect and presence and effort, but it doesn't cost money and it's not complicated. And it comes down to these very simple frameworks and tools and everything from being nice to each other to being respectful to each other. That is my biggest hurdle. It isn't validating the message. It isn't like getting the message. It's for people to take it seriously, even though in front of their faces, they have evidence that this is not commonplace and not common practice and that people are suffering every single day. And that is, I think my greatest hope of lessons learned in the pandemic, that what the pandemic revealed to us is the things we missed and mattered most were these human elements. And that's why we have, I think I heard the term, the great resignation, that these statistics that I just shared with you are blown out of the water because people are not returning to work. They're returning to meaning. They're returning to humanity and they're returning to what matters most. What's interesting about this great resignation is that a lot of people who are quitting, who hated their lives nine to five, Monday through Friday, they're quitting without a plan. Yes. So it's not like, oh, I've got right. you know five other job right. offers lined up. They're quitting because they don't want to return to that. And I like what you said earlier that that people don't quit companies, they quit bosses. That's and right. the statistic that you shared about the, the money lost uh, because these things are not the foundation, the, the stuff that you talk about are not the foundation of every company's culture. Right. To me, so so employees are having to look elsewhere. So they're having to sign up for this class or this app or or this mentor or this hero or on the weekends, I got to go to this seminar so that I can stomach going back to work on Monday to do do my job for one reason, and that is to get a paycheck. Right. I teach this uh, this seminar. I title it How Not to Be a Jerk. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and one of the points is, is, uh, and the reason why people think that you're a jerk is because you're on the phone all the time. Mm -hmm. Something as simple as that. Right. I mean, talk about my contact. Yeah. Oh, I love Simon Sinek when he talks yeah. about, you know, the, the guy who shows up to the, the staff meeting, the team meeting, and 
he has his phone, but he turns his phone over. Wow, you're so magnanimous. You are, yeah. what, a, what a wonderful human being you are. Yeah, he, exactly. he turned his phone over. He's such a wonderful man. Yep. No, that phone is still sending the message out that guess what? This phone at any moment could be more important than the people who are sitting face to face with me right now. That's, That's right. the message that you're sending That's out. 100% and people think that you're a jerk. When they think that you're a jerk, we don't bring out the best in them. And that's the uh, bare minimum of the damage that that can do. That's right. The bare minimum. And now imagine that every single day, like if you really look deep down in those statistics at the foundation of every single one of those stats, every single ailment, every single aspect of loss of productivity, um, apathy, all of those things at the foundation is individuals feeling like they didn't matter. Like if they didn't show up from work that anybody would care. And so that's the biggest message is when I talk about that, this is a message of life and death. And I don't just mean we die once in our life. We die lots of non-literal ways when we become less and less of who we are, we show up less and less of who we could be because we don't think it matters to anybody. When you said earlier that what came out of the survey was they want somebody to smile and say their name. I referred people to this restaurant all the time. And somebody finally challenged me like, when, why do you send so many people to that restaurant? And I had to think about it. And what it was, it wasn't that they had the best food or the best decor or the best ambience. It was because the guy who parks my car remembers my name. Your name. That's yep. what it came down to. Yep. He remembered my name. And you can look at entire organizations built on that. You can look at, I did a lot of research, a lot of interviewing at the Omni, at Ritz Carlton. You can look at Zappos. You can look at Disney. They're not perfect organizations, but at the core, Paul Mitchell, you can look at the core is mattering, the neuroscience, the science of mattering drives decisions. And, you know, they might not have done it from the aspect of they want to make people feel like amazing. It's cost effective. Not only do you not lose billions in productivity because you create a culture where customers and employees want to come, but you create lots of profits as well. So however you want to look at it, if it, you don't have to look at it from a warm, fuzzy, like I'm not trying to make you feel good about yourself. I say this a lot. If you don't secure the heart, you literally do not have a shot biologically at their brains or their business. You can fight me, but you cannot fight biology. Wow. Now there's a strong statement. I love it. You drive this message home. And uh, But before I, I switch gears here, you gave us a, a very, very good challenge, something that when we end this interview, when people stop listening to this, you gave us the call to action. Ask people, go yep. back and survey your people, and, yep. and you need to know this information. Uh, knowledge is power. It's not it bad is. news. It's information that can help you grow and improve. Absolutely. And there is, and it helps you attack what I call the perception gap, is what you perceive or believe that people in your life need doesn't always match up to how they perceive. We all have these frameworks and lenses in which we see the world. Probably the most, I don't know, devastating or in my face example of this is I was called in to an entire state. We had a task force because they had 28 suicides in five months. So this was the center for disease control, the FBI, they called 
the suicide epidemic there, a contagion. They did all of this massive research with stakeholders from schools to hospitals to first responders to analyzing 911 calls for a year and a half. And the whole time, because they had never talked to the students or really understood what drives human beings from a very early age. And the perception was that there was some meth epidemic or some epidemic of drugs that were. And I said, you don't have a drug problem in this community. You have a mattering problem. And that is, so they did this large scale survey and of 30,000 young people, there was the biggest perception was if they didn't show up the next day, nobody would miss them and nobody would care. And yet, if you ask 30,000 of their parents, of their teachers, of their community members, does win matter to you? Do you care? Do you delight when you see him? They 100% would answer yes. That's the perception gap. To perceive that people know you matter is the biggest challenge because when you ask them, that's a different story. Wow. Yeah. I love telling people and telling myself that we have to own people's perception. It's not just the reality. Yes. If if people don't know, we can say, oh, I care. But if people don't know that we care, we still have work to do here. That's right. And you cannot change a perception through convincing and converting. You only change a human being's perception when you change their experience. So you don't just stumble onto significance. You have to build it into your life and to the experience you have with people. So you have to create conditions, deliberate conditions where that person or people experience feeling truly seen, feeling heard, feeling valued and valuable. And that takes work. That actually takes commitment and work, not money, not a whole lot of time, but it takes leadership. Wow. Okay, I'm going to take you in another direction here. You carry around a notebook. Why? Yes. Most important practice of my life. Absolutely. And this is not something I learned in med school. This is something five-year-olds taught me. So I keep going back to five-year-olds because they, they represent the purest of who we were and the most hopeful of who we could be. And one of the things, it was a first-year teacher second week of school, 27 five-year-olds, all knowing that they mattered and all wanting me to notice them at the same time. Like, look at this and look at this and look at what I did. And I was like exhausted. So I sat them all down in front of me and I looked at them and I said, cause I, I always say you guys are genius. So you guys are genius. You are amazing. You, you literally put me in awe every day, but I cannot keep up with all of your genius. So here's what I did. I made us a chart (laughs) and I literally made a chart divided five to six kids a day. And I said, here's my promise to you. I will not only notice what you do, I will write it down. I made a notebook and I promise on Monday, you five, you can be awesome. Tuesday, you five can be awesome. And I will notice you Wednesday, you five. And I literally broke it down. I gave each of those kids one minute a day. I went to where they were. Like it could be at recess. It could be at lunch. It could be walking around. And my commitment was to notice and note something about them. And what the notebook did is it gave them a front row seat to their brilliance. Like they want to see, like I'm writing it down and they want to see like, what you write about me? What did you notice about me? And what started happening very quickly is that a student would do something like on Wednesday, they'd be like, 
Mrs. Myers, look at what Wen did, but he's not till a Thursday genius. So can we borrow your notebook? We want to write it down so that you can share with him what we noticed. So I just left it out and we had this group noticing notebook. And what I learned, this is 33 years later, this makes me cry. 33 years later, I have kept that practice of picking five people, not necessarily every day, but certainly every week, five people in my life that I take a few seconds, a minute at the most, and think about something specific that I value and respect and honor about them. And I make sure that I share that with what kind of develops is like with the language of mattering. Mattering has a syntax to it. It's different than saying good job. It's what I call a lasting compliment. So I've done that for 33 years. I give people in my life, sometimes I text it, sometimes on social, sometimes I write it, sometimes I speak it today. I did a brave thing and I did, I call them mattergrams. I did 10 video mattergrams to people in my life and I'm just gonna send them. And it was 20 seconds, 20 to 30 second video of what I noticed about their brilliance. And I just wanted them to have a front row seat to what I see. And you think that it changes the receiver. It changes the giver. It has changed me. I live my life more awake. I live my life more conscious, more grateful, more empathetic, just simply by taking a few minutes a day to notice. Wow. You also talk about giving kids what you call a genius hour. Yeah. Every week. Tell us yes. about that. So that is at a systems level, what I think is my greatest contribution to education, even though it's been adapted and evolved. I was writing a book on passion and sort of the misleading messages we give kids, adults, humans about passion is something you love to do. And when it's about suffering and enduring and figuring out in your life, what is worth the effort, what is worth committing to it and enduring and that it doesn't magically appear that it's developed. It's not discovered. And so when I interviewed, I interviewed Google, I interviewed FedEx, I interviewed these amazing companies that are known to be sort of passion driven and passion oriented. And I discovered that Google had this structure called 20% time. I mean, FedEx had it too. A lot of places have it. 3M had it, but I think Google popularized it and they gave their engineers one day a week or 20% of the time to pursue something they were passionate about that they would commit to with the caveat that it would change the community or change the world. So what I discovered was things in Google that you think came from the top, like you team will invent Google glasses and you team will invent a car. None of that came from the idea from the top. It came from just getting the hell out of people's way and letting them dream audaciously and letting them pursue it with people that mattered to them. And I'm like, crap, why are we not doing that in school? Like really? And so I said, well, we can't give one day a week. Teachers will freak out. But what if we gave one hour a week? And I called it genius hour where kids were able to develop their genius, to develop their passion, to figure out what was a hobby and what they would really be willing to endure, to figure out what mattered to them, why it mattered and what action they wished to take at it. And then the fundamental question in Genius Hour after answering what matters to you is what breaks your heart about that? So I call it empathy-driven innovation. And it was answering or mapping the heartbreak 
And it led you to either people mending that heartbreak or a gap. And that's when kids stood up. And that's what ignited Choose to Matter. And all the things that kids invented and developed, it came from empathy-driven innovation, where they didn't follow their passions or follow their heart. They followed heartbreak. And it's just to witness it was stunning. One hour a week. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I I don't know why I keep on coming back around to wanting to send a, a message out to that boss. If you have one team member yeah, or you have absolutely just to know that the, the culture that you create within that space, that work environment, do people run to work every single day? Do absolutely. people feel empowered? Do they leave there? Because if they feel the opposite of that, yeah, it's not just that one person that's impacted, but they go home and they have a spouse, they that's have right. kids, they have family, they have community and and how many more people are being negatively impacted because of the toxic environment that we so easily skip over that we think that it it doesn't really matter. And, and again, the opposite is true as well. And that's the soul sucking. That is the dangerous cycle of soul sucking, but it's also the brilliant cycle that, that gives us hope. So if you take just the work that you've done on kindness. Like when someone is nice to you, it's like something is triggered inside of you. If somebody holds the door open and smiles for you, you hold the door open and smile for someone else. That's why I hate the idea that this is random. I think it's dangerous when we use randomness and intuition, like whenever it comes to us, mattering is a practice. And in that practice is kindness and empathy and compassion and presence and all of those elements that we have to commit to in order for these conditions to be met. And yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know for sure, but I am pretty sure that Disney didn't have just one training, one oh, team huddle yeah. for their, their staff on the importance of creating this type of a culture within. <laughs> I, I think you're correct in that. Yeah. You're absolutely correct in that. And, and why it doesn't matter what you're selling, doesn't matter what product or service, why shouldn't it be just as important in your organization as it is for a company such as, as Disney, where, Absolutely. where we call it the happiest place on earth and exactly. and to be treated otherwise would just be such a, an affront. We know that how we are going to be treated there is exactly yeah. in line with that Disney culture. Absolutely. That, that, that. One of my favorite keynotes for industry is you don't have to be Disney to create magic. Creating magical human moments is about understanding humanity. And so I like talking about made up words. I made up like when people ask, like, what is my profession? I say that I'm a humanologist. I made that totally up. But it is the deep study of different dimensions of human development, human behavior, and understanding it from a neuroscience perspective, an educational perspective, a psychological, sociological, anthropology. It all comes to fruition when you understand those conditions. And so if you do that and you you understand those conditions of what makes somebody their best human self, then you can create magical human moments anywhere. You can create them over Zoom. You can create them in a keynote with 10,000 people. You can create them one-on-one, but it's not accidental. There is literally nothing accidental about this, nothing wow. random about this. You know, I would sign up for that course, uh, humanologist, <laughs> that college course on humanology. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I apologize to my listeners. If I've already told the story, I don't think that I have, cause it just happened a couple of weeks ago. 
so my, my daughter, who's nine years old and she's yeah. the shortest person in fourth grade, and but she <laughs> tried out for basketball. Now, granted, we don't own a basketball. We don't own a basketball hoop. She has never played basketball one day of her life, but she tried out for basketball. She didn't make the team and there were some tears, but I feel like that in itself is a good lesson. Well, then, then it was lesson. about battle of the books where you have to read a whole major book every week for like 25 weeks. And she was falling behind. She's a great reader, but we have a bunch of other things going on. So, okay, Sophia, you're falling behind on this. Well, then it was uh, the homework club and daddy, I want to be a part of the homework club. And finally she said to us, daddy, I just want to belong to something. Oh, oh my God. My whole heart. I just got shivers. That's right. Uh, she here's just my nine-year-old once again, teaching yes. me yes. basic, basic human needs. human needs. This is what yes. it's all about. I just want to be, Oh my God. Belong to something. I want to and be you're a willing part. to fail. You're willing to be brave. You're willing to do something you're not good at because that human driver, that human need is so strong. That is so, that is beautiful. I just want to hug your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you believe we've already been talking for more than an hour? This is what happened no, the other I can, day, I the know. first time that we got on the phone. <laughs> your poor listeners, we have to let them know that they matter and that we're not trying to like take up all their time. Like attention is such a gift. If oh, I, I I'm sure, I'm sure they're all looking at their clocks right now, thinking, how did this go by so fast? So, <laughs> so I'm gonna start to wrap this up by okay, which makes me a, a bit sad, but th- <laughs> thankfully you and I already have a lot of other things planned. Yes, yeah. Uh, you I heard you say when you have worthiness, you have beauty. Yes. What do you mean by that? I think the most beautiful human being is a human being that understands their value. It has nothing to do with all the things that affect our self-esteem. Self-worth is different. It doesn't matter what your hair looks like. It doesn't matter how tall you are, how skinny you are, how whatever you are. There is absolute beauty in watching. I call it, you know, somebody owning their genius that is absolutely in their element that there's not just a confidence about them. There's a calmness about who they are at that moment no matter how hard it is, no matter. And that's what you just described in your daughter. Like I can see her face when, yes, it's sad that she didn't make, but the fact that she's like, I'm going to go out for basketball. I'm going to try this. That is a human being seeking to bring their best self to the world. And that is a beautiful sight. Unfortunately, I don't see that sight in a lot of people over five and six and seven years old. And we've got to bring that back because we put so many caveats on what it means to be beautiful, what it means to be human. And all of those things diminish not only our individuality, but our humanity. When I say you matter, there's a period after it, not if, and when, and only, and because you matter right now as is. And that's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing to embody. Wow. Wow. So simple, but not easy. Yeah, not easy. Simple, but not easy, but doable. Absolutely doable. This is incredible. (laughs) Angela, before I ask you for a final message, tell people how they can find you. So honestly, if you, my last name spelled really weird, it's M-A-I-E-R-S. And so if you somehow forget it, you can just type in Angela, you matter. You can just type in hashtag you matter and you'll get to it. And I'm on every social, except for TikTok, I'm on every social channel as Angela Myers. So, and it is me doing social. Like I will reach out everything 
is authentically me. Like this isn't just like a speech topic for me. This is my mission. This is my life. This is what I was born to do. So I want to hear from you and I want to connect with you in any way that looks on any platform. Final message. Of course you matter. And I want to add a caveat to that. You are enough. You matter and you are enough. Every single day, people don't understand this. Even with me, I struggle with my own worthiness. There are days, multiple days, especially during the pandemic, that I feel like giving up, that I'm not enough, that I can't do this. And it is a reminder that no matter what I try, if I go out for basketball, that's enough. I don't have to be a star. I don't have to have this accolade. Like my existence is enough and there's power in that. So you matter, period. You are enough, exclamation point. Wow. I'm going to add nothing to that other than just to <laughs> thank you so, so much. You are so well. Oh, so much love and gratitude to you for not only just for the beautiful woman that you've been in the last couple of weeks as I've gotten to know you and the communication that we've had, because that in itself has been just blissful. I it's just the this profound message that yeah. you have and the difference that it's making. Thank you. Thank you. 